Morning all. So as you can see, part of a series that we're doing at the moment titled Flawed People, Faithful God. And once again, again as we saw last week, the start of the story of Gideon, we now enter into the true crux of the matter where uh, the rubber really hits the road for Gideon and his battle against Midian. Now, as I was thinking about it, my title, just let's see if this, yeah, it does. My title um, did get me thinking because, and I wasn't sure whether to, to share this, but it's kind of kept coming back to me all week. And then Simon and I were sharing a lift um, to work uh, on Friday, and I shared it with Simon and said, what do you think? Do you think this is just totally inappropriate? And he said, no, if it works, just do it. So bear with me on this one, all right? Um, it, the thing that kept coming back to me because of this title was actually this... Um, film, actually, made by the Nazis. And part of my debate about this was actually, I knew Simon was back today because he was getting baptised. And as a fellow history teacher, and Simon, I know you're not history teaching anymore, but for me, once a history teacher, always a history teacher, (laughs) all right? And you all know I have to share a bit of history at some point. Um, This film was made by a lady called Leni Riefenstahl back in 1934. Well, it actually came out in 1935. But it's, for me, as I was thinking about it, Triumph Triumph as Villains means Triumph of the Will. And when this, apparently it's very hard to get hold of copies of this film, it's actually been withdrawn because it's so dodgy. But um, nonetheless, one of the things that it shows is almost the exact opposite of what I'm going to be speaking about this morning. And when I was debating whether to talk about it, it just kept coming back to me that actually it really is. I did some research on it just to remind myself. And basically throughout this film, Hitler is portrayed as a godlike figure. So even at the very start, where Hitler is descending into Nuremberg, where they're going to hold a big rally, he comes down out of the clouds as if descending from the heavens. And he turns up, and all the videos, all the film shots are taken from below, looking up at Hitler as this kind of figure who's going to bring back glory to Germany. And actually, what we're talking about this morning is not a triumph of our will, which is what Hitler, it was Hitler's choice of title. It wasn't the triumph of our will. What we're talking about with Gideon is the triumph of God's will. And we're going to hopefully see that throughout this, this tale. In fact, when we come back to Gideon, this is a passage that I think really relates well. I'm going to be linking it to what is said in 1 Corinthians quite repeatedly. And this relates to us as well. That actually, when we were called, not many of us were wise by human standards. Not many of us are influential. Now, bear in mind there are exceptions. And obviously we do have a local MP who's generally quite involved in this church. And I suspect she might be quite influential but maybe not when she was called. And not many were of noble birth. And actually, it's kind of saying, guys, you kind of weren't that great by human standards. In actual fact, you're probably a little bit rubbish in most cases. Let's face it, be honest and realistic about it. And then you look at Gideon and you think, actually, that applies to him. He actually says, how can I save Israel? This was um, referred to by Ben last week, I think. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest. I am the least. He's not of noble birth. He's not influential. I mean, even in this passage, he's questioning God. That's certainly not wise either, is it? So Gideon himself, Ben again referred to this last week, he is literally weak. He is literally no use. He is literally a coward, actually. He's found hiding in a wine press. He certainly wasn't any of those things, influential, wise, or of noble birth. So Gideon himself actually had not much to call on in terms of human resources, but God chose him. And we can see that again. If you carry on this passage from 1 Corinthians, it goes on to say, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify, to get rid of, to remove the things that are 
so that no one may boast before him. And actually, there's a real parallel here with Gideon, because when God says, to, to, when Gideon's challenging God and saying, how, how, how can I do this? God said, just all he says is, I will be with you. You don't need anything else. You don't need to be wise. You don't need to be, you're not any of those things anyway, but you don't need to be, because I'm with you. I will be there. And I've chosen you is effectively what he's saying. And the fact that he's having that conversation with Gideon sums it up. It did really, I kind of added this question onto the start of my intro, just um, how willing, and I suppose this is a question for all of us really, how willing do we think we are to pay attention to a message that's founded in weakness if we were or are wise, influential, or of noble birth? How able would we be, how capable would we be of actually considering this message if we've kind of got all the human resources we really need already. Actually, that vulnerability that comes through not having those resources is actually an incredibly powerful thing because it speaks to what God really wants of us. So just this one in my first point, I'm going to... ...in a very humble way that does not involve boasting or pride... It's almost like he's saying, look how strong God is that he's able to work even through me when I'm in this situation, when I have this thorn in my side. And it's the same with Gideon. God is able to work even through Gideon when he is this weak. Because God works not in spite of our weaknesses. We often see it like that. But I'm just, I'm not good enough to do this, but God manages it anyway. It's not that. He works because of our weaknesses. We cannot know the true strength of God unless we see it working through our weaknesses. Through our weaknesses, not because of our weaknesses. Because his saving power only does its best work when we are weak and know we are. That's actually the principle of salvation as well. The guys who are coming to be baptised this morning, that's a message that they've obviously heard loud and clear, that actually repentance is when we truly sorrow over our own failures and weaknesses that God's love and grace become more precious and real to us. It's only when we know how big our debts are and what we're being saved from that we can truly take joy in what we have been given in terms of salvation. And actually, there's a parallel there with Gideon again, isn't there? Because the greater the army against him was, and the smaller his own army, the more, in fact, he ends up praising God in the end for what could have happened and yet what did happen instead. And it's, that's how we grow as Christians, isn't it? Often, it's actually when good things become too important to us that actually we don't grow, we don't develop, we don't trust. And it's only when those things that are so precious to us are threatened or removed that we turn and find our safety and security and significance in God rather than in those tangible things around us that provide that for us in a very superficial sense, as it often turns out. So, my second point is just the lowly things, and we're going to read through this bit, because this is quite, I, I quite like this bit of the story. It often gets kind of glossed over, but it's actually a fascinating part of the story. So, um, during that night, so this is Gideon, they're all set up, they're ready to go, the battle's about to start the next morning, 300 against 135,000. Okay, you almost heard, I don't know if you've, Leah, my eldest daughter, is really into Greek mythology, and in fact, her sister calls her um, the Geeky Greeky, which I think is a little bit harsh. Um, but if you know anything about that, there's the famous, in fact, there was a film made about a few years back called 300, wasn't it? The Battle of Thermopylae, where um, the uh, Greeks held off the Persians and all died in the process. Well, I can tell you they're not all going to die in the process this time around. Um, and yet not much of a fuss is made about this one. But Gideon, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, 
get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, Gideon is afraid, and that's what comes across implicitly from this, go down to the camp with your servant and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack. Gideon must be thinking, what? I'm going to attack them? Surely they're going to attack me. It's the other way around. But they do say the best form of defense is attack. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels, obviously they were counting in terms of camels, which seems like a strange way to us of doing it, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his dream. What was this dream? I had a dream, the man was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Now, what you need to bear in mind about uh, barley bread, this is a piece of barley bread. Actually, that's generally speaking food for dogs and cattle. You do not get much more, um, much more of a humble, a, a lowly version of food than barley bread. That is about as low as it comes. That is what is fed to animals. And yet, this barley bread, this, this kind of symbol of humility, is actually used to indicate Gideon, as we're going to see now, and they were afraid of him. I had a dream, as I've saying, we said that, his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So God, God kind of understands us, doesn't he? That's what I really like about this bit that's often kind of glossed over. Because God understands that actually this is a big thing for Gideon. This is not just straightforward to just trust that 300 men are going to be 35,000. And actually he gives them, him that assurance of victory. He doesn't at the same time give Gideon the ability to have pride and boast in what's about to happen. But he just reassures him. He says that actually I'm just going to remind you by the barley bread, I think in an odd way, of his own lowliness and inadequacy. It kind of comes across, doesn't it, from the symbol that he chooses. But that is turned on its head into a symbol of his victory in the Lord that's about to come. You see, when we know we're weak and are often reminded of it, actually we need that other reminder that God is strong in the midst of us, in the midst of it. We need reminding of the truth that what stands against us is not as strong as we think it is, and certainly not in the eyes of God. And appearances can be really deceptive. What I really like about this as well is Gideon's instant response to bow down and worship, to acknowledge that God really is the God who saves, the God who redeems, the God who's going to put them into the position that they need to be in to win this battle. And then, action straight away. If you remember, one of the things I loved about Jenny's talk, many things I loved about it, was um, it really spoke to me, actually, but one of them was the bit where Deborah turns to Barak and says, go. It's kind of like they've been waiting for the moment, and then Barak is told to go by the prophetess, and he moves. Here, that, is, that reassurance is all Gideon needs, and he moves to action straight away. God takes the initiative in this story as well. Did you notice that? It's actually God who takes, not Gideon. He doesn't go to God and go, look, I'm a bit petrified here. I need you. You know, bear in mind, the story started with Gideon laying out all these fleeces because he was scared of doing, comparatively, some quite basic things, chopping down a pole, effectively. And yet now there's no laying out of fleeces. 
It's just God takes the initiative, reassures him, and he goes. He doesn't wait. Now is the time. In fact, it reminds me a little bit, sorry, another history bit for you, but Churchill used to stamp during World War II or write on documents where he wanted something to happen instantly. He used to write, action this day. And I, I love that, just that it, it was action this day for Gideon as well. We're going to move now. Gideon does have to take risks, though, doesn't he, in this story? He has to take risks. He has to go down into the enemy camp and listen outside a tent. And actually, he has to step out a bit. It's not like everything is done for him, as it later is in the battle, interestingly. But he has to go into the enemy camp. But he's given confidence, he's led to worship, and he's stirred to action while he's there. God often gives us what we need to do, uh, what we need in order to do what he's asked us to do. And obviously with Simon and Miriam's story that we've just been hearing, that's what we pray for you guys as well, that actually he would give you that uh, confidence, that ability and those tools as you move to do the things that he's called you to do, just as with all of us in our own front lines as well. We find it so easy, don't we, to doubt or forget God. And actually, again, another thing that's spoken to me in recent years is, um, you know, the Ebenezers that they used to set up. I can remember us doing this once in church where it was um, the, the reminders of what God has done, where they'd build a cairn, a tower of some description, and the Israelites would be reminded of what God had done because of that symbol that was there. And I've actually recently built my own little Ebenezer at home to remind myself, not like a massive thing in the middle of the kitchen or anything, just to reassure you, um, but at my own little cairn just on my desk so that I can just be reminded of what God has done for me. So we do need to turn to those reassurances, don't we? Those reminders of what God has done for us in the past to give us the confidence to keep trusting in him. And actually, that's where we have to turn to. We have to turn to God's word when we need that reassurance. Turn to other people. I mean, that's one of the great things about being back together again, isn't it? We can actually meet with each other, be spoken to by each other, spend time with each other. And actually, it's through other Christians often that we get this message that will reassure us and give us that confidence again and actually often through the circumstances of life God leads Gideon down this path we are also led down certain paths and actually we know we've been reassured when we're led to heartfelt praise and worship of God and radical confident obedience so if we if we are worried if we are scared and we go to God go to other Christians read his word actually we know we're reassured when we feel that sense of confidence in him I think I've been feeling my own weakness recently at work. And one of the things I've kind of been reassured by, actually, is that just occasionally on the morning, quite frequently, actually, as I'm driving to work, obviously not when Simon's there because we chat constantly, but um, on my way to work, when suddenly I start singing this kind of song out of nowhere, just a, some sort of praise, praise of God, and I'm thinking, all right, I do feel quite reassured. And it's always the song that pops into my head is often very relevant to the circumstances that I'm in. So when you're feeling particularly lowly, when you're feeling particularly weak, when you're lacking confidence to do what you feel God has told you to do, just remember that loaf of barley bread, that lowly, humble loaf of barley bread. And bear in mind that Jesus, again, I've mentioned this several times uh, recently, Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly. He was like that himself, and he's actually been there before you. He himself was humble and lowly and knew what it was like to be in that position. And he would always turn to God. He would always turn to his father and pray. So let's just try and do the same. And finally, the foolish things. I love this plan, okay? This plan that Gideon comes up with to beat the Midianites doesn't appear to come from God. You can't help thinking that there's an element of military genius in Gideon that nobody knew about, not even him. 
And yet, God was even in that. God is even in the successes, isn't he? God created us to be who we are. And actually, when there are those positive things that happen, where it turns out you've been given some particular gifting that you were unaware of, that's just as much God. And that's just as much him working through us. So this is what his plan. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets. Can you imagine that? When you're standing there, and Gideon comes up to you and goes, actually, I'm just taking that sword off you. Okay, we'll put that to one side. And here's a trumpet, and here's a jar. Okay? Um, empty jars in the hands of all of them. Oh, and then he goes, oh, yeah, and you can have a torch as well. Cheers. Thank you for that. Not sure what I'm going to do with it. Wave it at them. Um, Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. So he takes a proper lead there as well, doesn't he? Watch me. Watch do as I do. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, (coughs) just after they changed the guard. Now, what's really interesting about this, and incredibly clever, and you can miss it really easily, I missed it when I read over this, is that last bit at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. Now, what's really clever about that is they generally divided the night up into three watches. And when a guard has finished, I know about midnight, the first watch has finished, those men march back in from the outposts, just as the other men are marching out to take over their role, because you can't leave a gap or much of a gap between those in case the enemy comes up in that small gap between them. So one group's marching back in while the other group's marching back out. Can you kind of see what might happen here as the two sides, the two sides of the same army, start to come together? So what they do is this. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled. So the two sides are coming together, and then the sound of the trumpets and the blazing light that suddenly surrounded them, they attack each other. And what, um, there is a, almost a deliberate mistake in this picture, which I've deliberately chosen, because all the pictures show this happening. Can you see the, uh, the um, men of Israel kind of all charging towards the enemy? If you look at it, that's not what happened. That is not what happened at all. In fact, it specifically says each man held his position around the camp. They didn't move. They stayed stationary. What an amazing bit of glory to give to God. They literally did nothing except blow a trumpet and hold up a blazing light. This must be the easiest bit of fighting anyone's ever done throughout history. It's just incredible. They are literally stood still, and it all happens in front of them. Imagine winning victories like that. Absolutely incredible. They did nothing more than blow their trumpets and smash their jars. Not one of the 300 men of Israel needs to kill any of the enemy. It's all done for them. They kill each other. And God, really, it's God, isn't it, who's, who's actually doing, us, doing this. And actually, it's so important, isn't it, when God acts in this way, that we give the glory to him. And that is what Gideon does after this. But that's probably a story for another day. So just to finish, because um, that's kind of heading towards the end, there is one more passage from, the one, from, this, um, from Judges 7 that I'm going to refer to. Bear in mind, we were told by Ben last week, Gideon was found hiding in a wine press, wasn't he? Threshing wheat. Who threshes wheat in a wine press? Kind of crazy in those days. That is not what it was intended for, and it's very much hiding underground. And the first reassurance that was given to Gideon of God's presence being with him was at a rock. Interestingly, at the end of Judges 7, the final verse, it actually tells you about the two kings, Oreb and Zeb, great names. Oreb and Zeb were caught up with and killed. 
His two great enemies, these two great Midianites who were leading the enemy, were killed. Guess where they were killed? In a wine press and at a rock. And I love that full circle that this story goes. Though that wine press and that rock were almost a symbol to start with of Gideon's weakness and his fear and his cowardice. And yet they end up being symbols of his victory? No, of God's victory, of how God has been with him, has worked through him, and has enabled all of this to happen. So Gideon's weakness, his loneliness, his foolishness, shame the strong, as that passage says, reduce to nothing the things that are, and shame the wise. So just as we head towards a finish, sorry, actually, was, yeah, I used that verse, um, God chose the foolish things. He chose the, the weak things. God chose the lowly things so that no one may boast. And we see that same thing at the start of Judges 7, don't we? So that no one may boast. They will boast if they have a massive, strong army. At the end of this, if they'd had all those soldiers, few as they were, the 35,000, there would have been potential there for Israel to go, we did it, we made it. Who needs God? And we know through the past few sermons that we've been looking at in this series, that was a common feature for Israel, wasn't it? To say it's all down to us, nothing to do with God. So God chose all of these different weak things. Caleb, I remember years ago doing a sermon on the upside-down kingdom. I still remember that. This is the upside-down kingdom in practice, where actually he chooses all the things that are weak, lowly, that are disrespected, that are not seen as great, and he uses them for his own purposes. And actually, this passage ends. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We need to know how weak we really are before God can really do his best work in and with us. When we're most vulnerable, most unsure of ourselves, most lacking in confidence in our own abilities, that's when God can actually use us most. But we have to know it, don't we? And this, God made sure Gideon knew it in this circumstance, didn't he? By reducing his army to 300 and so it ends up being in God that we boast always. Interestingly, at the end of this, it says, therefore, as it is written. And in uh, the Bible I was looking at, the NIV, there's a little uh, letter, which always means that it refers back to something else. So I looked it up just to see what it refers to. And it refers to what the Lord says in Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on, in, on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. And then that's taken a step further by Paul later on when in Galatians, where he actually says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That cross, which actually sums up, if you understand the cross, you understand God, as, as, as God says in Jeremiah there, that, that prophetic word to Jeremiah. So, the ultimate triumph in weakness was Jesus' death on the cross. And that's what all of this ultimately, or in the end, points towards. That actually Jesus, just as we're going to see in the baptisms in a second, that's what it's all pointed towards. Actually, the salvation, that cross that we've got there is the symbol of that salvation that these guys have experienced and that they're going to come and test, give their testimonies about in a second or two. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to hand back over to Caleb. Thanks, Caleb.